very strong stomach for for violence and sexual violence and dark stuff and I can you know there's no book or film that I would find too appalling or upsetting to watch or read. A plot on the page is how I now explain it. Somebody at a book event gave me that expression once because there's this whole plotter versus pantser thing. Yeah. And uh, a woman in the audience said, I don't believe in plotters and pantsers. I just believe that some writers plot on the page. So I've taken that with me. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes, setting off a chain of events. <laughs> Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And this episode is a bit weird for us because is it's it? with the brilliant Lisa Jewell. Yeah, it's with the brilliant Lisa Jewell. That's not why it's weird. The weird part is that this was, was this the second ever recording that we did, but we had to hold it because of the release date Ooh, of the book? Yeah, it might have been. It was quite early on, wasn't it? It all kind of, it's a bit Tony like time's Kent weird right now. I don't know when, yeah. when was June? <laughs> and who was June? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we did Tony Kent and then fairly certain that we did Lisa. So things that you need to be aware of. Um, I didn't have a proper microphone. Okay. So I was bawling into my laptop. Right. So you'll make you you basically saying you, you don't like the sound so much that you're saying you're being a bit of a radio professional. My voice was not <laughs> up to scratch, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was not butch and sincere enough. Um, and then the other thing is uh, to mention is that for some reason, and I can't honestly, you, can you remember why this is? Normally when we do mm. these, one of us does a little mini intro yeah. with some stats about the writer. We didn't do it for this one. Oh, I don't know why. Uh, the only reason I can think is maybe because you've interviewed Lisa Jewell a few times before, right? Uh-huh. So it might have just been like, yeah. oh, yeah, like we're mates, Lisa. I'll, I'll do the intro later, sweetheart. <laughs> Is that an impression of me? No, it's not. It's awful. <laughs> and it's not how you talk I mean, at all. No, no. I mean, I don't mind if you want to have a pop, but, you know, make it accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologise. That would be, like, be like me impersonating you by going, hello, tree calls, it's Natalie here. <laughs> I think the only person who's allowed. <laughs> the only person who's allowed to do that is Linda Laplante because we're cut from the same cloth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lisa Jewell, Invisible Girls, the book. Um, actually, before we do that, we haven't done. Where are our listeners? Have we? I feel this might need a jingle soon. You know that. Really? Okay. Yeah. I can get. Um, I'm gonna, Eli's just come into the room he, again, so I can get Eli to record one if you like. Yeah, get him to do one. Yeah. Just something like listeners around the world. Yeah, maybe not. Something like that. <laughs> He'll do it better. He knows what to do. <laughs> I trust in his musicality. Okay, fine. Uh, so we've got four listeners in Mexico. <gasps> nice. Again, never been. Would love to. My husband has Have been. You not been. No, my husband's been to Mexico, but like I adore Mexican food, obviously. <laughs> so, mm. um, yeah, it just looks gorgeous. When your husband went, was he gone for about seven days? And um, did he come back looking slightly dishevelled and? Did he say he was just dropping something off? He didn't really know what it was. 
No, he uh, he was actually working out there this quite a long time ago. So he went a few times to Mexico City and Guadalajara. Um, oh wow, they have two of the livelier yeah. places. Yeah, and um, yeah, had a really good time. Uh, I think quite hard work that he was doing. But again, because he's my husband, uh, we spoke quite a lot mm. about all the amazing food that he ate. Uh, okay, yeah, that is your real thing, isn't it? I'm really learning that about <laughs> you now. <laughs> yeah. By the way, full credit to your son there, unbeknownst to you, just jumped on your bed in his pants. Yeah, yeah, it's the path of the course. <laughs> That's how he rolls. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Haven't quite gone back to school just yet, so, yeah. I'm rocking around in my pants. Sorry, yay, edit. Uh, so Lisa Jewell, Invisible Girl is her latest book, and I'm, I can't remember if I said this when we spoke to her or not, but it kind of took me a little while to get into the style of this book. And then, yeah, and this starts with Lisa teaching us a brand new term that neither of us have heard in writing before called a, a pantser. And that's nothing to do with Elliot. Um, so you'll find out what a pantser is in a moment. And um, just to say that there'll be a first in bestsellers on this edition. And if you stay to the very, very end of the episode, you'll get some Smokey and the Bandit style outtakes. on the page is how I now explain it somebody at a book event gave me that expression once because there's this whole plotter versus pantser thing yeah and, uh, a woman in the audience said I don't believe in plotters and pantsers I just believe that some writers plot on the page so I've taken that with me uh, that's what I do yeah so basically when I start writing a book the only place that book has existed before it, I start typing chapter one is inside my head there's no notes or, or whiteboards or post-it notes or anything um, what was the other, the other phrase you used there? Pantsers. Pantsers. That's writers who write by the seats of their pants. <laughs> yes. Which is kind of, it is, it's quite accurate because that is what it feels like. You're constantly feeling like you're doing something really dangerous. <laughs> when you first started writing professionally, I suppose, or, or, you know, that first novel, Sitting Down and Writing, had you already done years and years of researching how other people write and the way to do it and all the different methods that people seem to use trying to kind of glean where you might fit into that no no I mean I started writing as a bet um, when I was a drunken bet um, with a friend um, so the whole thing was just supposed to be a bit of fun I was just writing three chapters uh, just to win the bet um, so that she would take me out for a free dinner um so I started writing that first book very much unprepared I had done a little creative writing course evening classes um but I certainly hadn't done any research into writing I say that I've read a lot you know that's the ultimate way of, of, of researching writing methods um so no I came to writing very much as an amateur very much um uh not taking it very seriously at all um and just got extraordinarily lucky um that that that, that experiment turned into a novel that got publishing deal um so yeah I love how alcohol sometimes can be that impetus to give you the confidence to do it because in a similar way though I'm not published but I have written my first book and I'm starting a second one and I've got an agent and I, I did one of the writing courses with Faber 
but the in a similar way I'd kind of been toying with doing it for a long time and then I suddenly was like okay sod it like if I'm going to do this I've just got to do it and decided to submit to Faber only but I wrote my submission drunk on the way home <clears throat> after a night out in London and I just wrote it uh, wrote sort of about 3,000 words on the train on the way home similarly I was like yeah go on then <laughs> Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, exactly. Sometimes, um, yeah, you just need to lift some of your own self-doubt um, through the form of alcoholic beverages. Um, yeah, because I would never have had the confidence to say to that friend during the drunken conversation we were having that I wanted to write a novel. If I'd been sober, I wouldn't have said that because it would have been a ludicrous, stupid, very sort of self-important thing to say. So, yeah. Yay for alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and so to Invisible Girl, and I'm always, um, with this type of book, I'm loath to say too much about the plot because there's lots of twists and turns as we go through. There's a lot going on here, a lot of characters in it. Have you managed to get it down to a kind of neat explainer as to what it's about without giving too much away? Oh, thank you for, uh, for uh, <laughs> how difficult it is in these early days of talking about a new book. Well, let's say if you want. talk about it before. I don't mind it's having a so go. You could, you could stop me when I, if I get too far. You do it, Phil. All right, all right then. All right. Yeah, okay. Thank you. So, um, you've got a family who are living in a very nice rented house because their house has been done up. That clearly they're not happy. You've got suspicions about the husband. The wife seems neurotic to me. Uh, the kids seem like they're not quite on the same sheet. Um, there's another young teenage character and she goes missing and there's also a series of sexual assaults in the area where this rented house is yes. and we have to try and work out who's perpetrating the assaults what's happened to the teenage girl and what's really going on within the family and what about are we Owen? there without any spoilers oh and i've missed off yeah i've missed yes. off weird freaky guy yeah. opposite yes so the, the family are living in this posh flat in hampstead while their house is being renovated and there's a house opposite there's um divided into flats it's quite a weird house full of weird people and there's this guy who lives in this house called Owen who uh, their teenage daughter has decided is creepy and scary um, and he's also just been um, uh, made not made redundant but asked to leave his job as a as a teacher at a college because of complaints about sexual misconduct with some of his students which may or may not be true and so when this girl goes missing um, opposite his house, yeah, the, uh, the the spotlight falls very firmly on poor Owen. Um, so yes, he's the third the third piece of the jigsaw. This seems like an opportune time uh, to hear some of Invisible Girl, if that's all right, Lisa. If you've got a little bit to hand, I do. It's a little bit of paper because I don't have a book because they couldn't print me any proof. So I'm reading off a little bit of paper, which feels a bit sad because I should have a nice solid book in my hands by now. But there you go, strange times. Um, I'm reading a little bit of Kate, who's the neurotic, uh, the neurotic mother that Phil mentioned earlier. And this is from quite early on in the book. And it's just after her daughter's friend claims to have been assaulted outside their house. Kate slips out of bed and goes to the front window, a large bay overlooking the street. The just risen sun shines through the trees onto the building site across the road. It looks innocuous. Then she looks further to the right, to the house with the armchair on the driveway. She thinks of the man who lives there, the creepy man who'd followed Georgia home from the tube station, who'd thrown her and Tilly dirty looks last night as he put out his bins. 
the man who matches the description that Tilly gave of the man who assaulted her. Kate locates the card the policeman gave her last night. Detective Inspector Robert Burdett. She calls him, but he doesn't answer, so she leaves a message for him. I'm calling about the assault on Tilly Krasnicki last night, she begins. I don't know if it's anything, but there's a man across the street at number 12. My daughter says he followed her home the other night. And then she says he was staring at her and Tilly strangely on their way home from school last night. I don't know his name, I'm afraid. He's about 30 or 40, that's all I know. Sorry, just a thought. Number 12, thank you. So. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes, setting off a chain of events. <laughs> now there's, um, within this, and again, I'm, I'm treading gently because I don't want to do spoilers, but there's some quite tough areas that you explore here, I, I would say, as a reader. Yeah. Um, from in, involuntary celibates to some nasty sexual assaults. How do you, when you're composing your story, how do you decide what's enough detail and what would be too much and you take out too much? Oh, that's a really good question that I've never actually been asked before. Um, I think I, because I have a very strong stomach for violence and sexual violence and dark stuff and I can you know there's no book or film that I would find too appalling or upsetting to watch or read um, so but I also know that I'm probably in a smaller percentage um, of the population in terms of my appetite for these sorts of things so I suppose and I've never actually thought about this but I must have somewhere in my subconscious one of my more medium level readers <laughs> who I know likes a bit of dark stuff but doesn't want to be traumatized or upset. I, I guess I just get to a point where I think, okay, I think the reader can probably imagine the rest for themselves at this point to go into too much detail here. But it's a really good question. I've never actually thought about it. It's something I very much do subconsciously. And, and so even in the writing process, for example, you were telling us about your own children earlier and you've got teenagers. Did, did they pop into your mind when you were writing about the threat to teenage safety in this or are you able to separate it? Um, yes, I'm, I, I'm very compartmentalised as a writer. I very much write in a bubble that doesn't have any impact on you know, the way I feel when I'm not writing. Um, and actually, <laughs> my daughter's never going to listen to this podcast, so I think it's fine. Uh, Georgia is actually kind of based on my daughter. That's very much what she's like as a person, this sort of larger than life, kind of quite bolshy character. Um, and still I never, even though I was writing a character who was quite loosely based on my daughter, I never thought of my daughter being in that position. Um, specifically, I thought about how Kate would feel about her daughter's safety rather than about how I would feel. So yes, I very much writing for me and the scenarios that I write about and the dangers that I write about feel very, very, removed from my own my own real life does that mean as well when you're writing these quite dark psych psychological thrillers that it doesn't necessarily impact your outlook while you're deep in the zone writing them in terms of it doesn't make you feel a certain way or less sunny or happy perhaps no 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 I mean there was <laughs> in my last book the family upstairs this is really horrible rape scene um which culminates in the rape victim uh, murdering the person who's just raped them. Um, I wrote this scene in a cafe surrounded by people and small children and old people and what have you. And I got to the end of the chapter and I wrote it really, really quickly. 
And I just thought, okay, I finished that chapter and I flicked onto Facebook and started looking at, you know, people's posts about their new puppies and what have you and just ordered another cappuccino and just, it didn't, the two things were just completely and utterly disconnected from each other. I, I, I don't know if that means that I'm um, like a sociopath or something. <laughs> But no, I, I, I do very much compartmentalise writing from, from my own emotions and my own life. The good news for you, Lisa, is that the fact that you just asked that question, I don't know if that means I'm a sociopath, means you're not one. Because if you were oh, one, you wouldn't have the self-awareness and the, and the empathy to even consider it. So. Oh, thanks, Phil. Thank you. That's very reassuring. <laughs> Owen does quite a lot of, you mentioned that the guy, the neighbour, it's quite yeah. a lot of reading about incels, involuntary celibacy. Does that mean that you had to do that level of reading? Had you, were you familiar with that term before this book? Oh, yes. Yes. I'm familiar with all the bad people in the world. You know, <laughs> like the family upstairs was about, you know, the guy who started the cult in the house. And people said, did you do a lot of research into cults? It's like, I don't need to because I already knew all about cults, you know. Um, because it's interesting because you pick up on things and you watch documentaries and you read news reports. Um, so yeah, with the incel thing, I already just thought it was a fascinating area to look at. Um, but before I started writing, I didn't quite know how deep I was going to go into it. So I've got this guy, Owen, who at a very vulnerable point in his life, um, finds himself on an incel forum. Um, and someone he meets on that forum attempts to radicalise him. I will, I will go no further than that. But before I started writing, I had no idea whether I was going to allow my character to become radicalised or not. So whether he was going to go, you know, cross fully over into the dark side of the incel community or or not. So I won't say anything, obviously, because of spoilers. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so that was really interesting for me to have this this character who was so vulnerable to manipulation at such a, a low point in his life and see how far he would go, how far he would cross into that world. Do you think that's a key point of how you write in yes. that you don't necessarily do yeah. a huge amount of research or plotting before you get into it because I thought it was interesting in um so we spoke to Linda LaPlante earlier in this series and she was talking how for her she has to do a ton of research she gets all the research she can does, does interviews with retired police officers people who work in mortuaries everything so she's kind of got all this in her head before she sits down and I liked that in your acknowledgements for Invisible Girl you're quite open about saying I'm in my bubble I do no research I don't talk to anybody about it this is my story and you just sit down and go and then it's retrospectively yeah you might do some research or other people might say actually we need to insert something yeah no there is it's, it's totally I mean this is like the, my 18th book and there was a, a period in my writing career and I thought maybe there was a different way that I could write so that I could do this a better way and I now don't even bother considering the option of writing any other way other than just letting the story unfold from within my weird warped but not sociopathic mind and let my characters be whoever they're going to be. So I don't, I've, occasionally I'll have a character who I know can only be in the plot for good and I know that that character is not going to suddenly warp and become a dark or a character or a criminal but most of my characters I leave very very open-ended when I start writing them I give them the option of doing the bad thing or not doing the bad thing and I decide as I'm writing and I think that does that does mean that my yeah that I think that adds to the page turning quality of my books because I don't know 
So then the reader doesn't know either. So we're kind of on the same wavelength. I'm writing in almost the same way that the reader is reading, as in not really sure what's going to happen next, not really sure whether you can trust someone or not, not really sure whether someone is a good person or a bad person. So no, I think I've now turned it around that my lack of plotting is actually part of what makes my books so readable. Do you have to then retrospectively make sure that your red herrings tie up and that your twists and turns yeah. is it more about writing backwards if that makes sense i don't tend to write backwards it's just i'll put stuff into the plot that doesn't mean anything as i put it in there and then find a way to use it later um so like there was a book i wrote called watching you that um i described this character having a red tassel on their they had red suede ankle boots with a red tassel on which i just mentioned in passing just because I wanted the reader to be able to envisage this character and the sort of clothes she would wear. But that red tassel became a massive part of the plot because it was found at the murder scene. Um, so, yeah, so I just sort of, I seed things out there um, without even knowing that I'm doing it, but I then have to find a way to make those things relevant to the plot and part of the story. And do you do martial arts yourself or does one of your kids do martial arts or because there's a scene where uh, yeah, they're at the so, dojo and they're, yeah. they're, you've got the language right and everything. Yeah. So my elder daughter did do, what was it? Taekwondo? Yes, that's what she does, isn't it? Taekwondo. She did a few, a few lessons back when she was about 13. So I've been to that dojo of which I write in the book and I have a little bit of insight. But again, so I didn't do research. As, as such I already knew Mind about it from what your life. looks like and what kids look like when they've all just come from school and they're taking their school shoes off in the changing room and hanging their hoodies up and all that sort of business um yeah but no I don't do martial arts so how do they end a class Lisa I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> I've written it down you did write it down yeah. say it. <laughs> <laughs> you say it <laughs> there is a lot of talk about hoodies in your book as well it feels like <laughs> I, it's hoodie tastic the whole book i noticed that when i was when i was going through it to do my my copy edit it's like my god there's a hoodie on every page <laughs> oh, i've started another book i'm ten thousand words into my next book and i've already got hoodies going on in the book it's just like, oh, it's a strange strange obsession it is it's funny another author we were chatting to uh tony kent uh, he was saying how there is always a phrase or a thing or something that kind of haunts him almost per book where it just becomes a bit of a nervous tick where he writes about it all the time, what, you know, whether it's a phrase or what yeah. it might be. And then at the end, he's like, oh, I'm really embarrassed. I need to go back and take out some of those <laughs> things that I was clearly obsessed with, you know, somebody being touched on the shoulder or whatever it might be. So do you think yeah. hoodies is your thing for this hoodies. one? Well, to be fair, in my defence, the book is about, um, at its heart, about a girl hiding herself from the world so that she can go out and, and see things that other people can't see. And so a lot of that involves her wearing a hoodie and putting her hood up so that she becomes invisible because she's a very beautiful character as well. So she's much more obvious when she's got her hood down. So there's that. But yeah, beyond that, there is still an awful lot of hoodies in the book. I was curious as well, which I'm sure you've probably been asked a trillion times in other interviews, but obviously your writing career started in one direction and then shifted mm -hmm. from romantic comedies into psychological thrillers and yes. personally I quite like that it feels like you know you you should be able to write whatever you like and change the genre and be able to challenge yourself but was there resistance when you switched and what was the impetus that made you go I want to do something different now? 
okay well yeah I mean it, it kind of wasn't like that at all what it was was when I first sat down to write a novel when I was 26 years old back in 1990 however something rather um I wanted to write something really dark um I started writing something really dark and I just couldn't connect with it and I thought I'm going to write about that another time when I'm older older and wiser I'll do that and then I started this other story about a love triangle which was going to be slightly dark but the the direction it went off in was very much I think informed by my psychology at the time which was I was highly jolly madly in love um just it was a really really amazingly bright magical time in my life so I ended up writing this really lovely joyous book about you know relationships and flat sharers in in south london and what have you um which then was a massive bestseller um which meant that my publishers would be would have been rather alarmed i think at that point if i'd come back with something you know much darker than that so what i have been able to do and i've been so lucky to be able to do this over the 18 books of my career is just move it along ratchet it up um in increments with each book and I've always been testing the waters very carefully because the last thing I want to do is lose readers. But the, the thing I want to do more than anything is gain readers. So there's been this sort of balance the whole time between can I get away with this dark storyline? And then I got to, I think, my 12th novel and I killed someone. Am I going to get away with this? Am I going to get away with having killed someone? And all along, I've had nothing but positive feedback from my readers and my publishers, which is massively important. And here I am with uh, uh, selling better than I ever sold, uh, even when I was writing my early um, romantic comedies. So clearly I've, I've managed to pitch it just right, time it just right, make the, the right changes at the right time. You know, just choosing the right moment to, to move things along a bit. So it was never a, a moment of thinking, all right, that's it, I'm gonna write a psychological thriller now, I've had enough of these romantic comedies. It was never like that. It's been very organic. And what do you make of the because in publishing, everyone has a tag, don't they? And the tag that for your most recent book seems to be this domestic noir phrase I keep hearing from publishers and from retailers. How do you feel about yeah. that? It's fine. I think it does what it says on the tin. I mean, all my books have a domestic setting. I'm obsessed with houses. I love writing about families. Um, and they're very dark. So I can't really argue. I think my books fall very neatly into that catch-all phrase. I think it's very accurate. So better than chiclet. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think people are so derogatory about chiclets? Um, I think because people read a handful of books back in the 90s that was probably slightly throwaway, probably slightly um, lacking in depth and, and, and followed, you know, there were quite a lot of cliches going on in some of those earlier books and then decided that any book that had a colourful cover and uh, was written by a woman um, would fall under the same um, category and it's just laziness it's just laziness um, I, I know at some point in the 90s somebody described um, Sadie Smith as a chiclet writer uh, so if it's li literature written by a chick I guess <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah cover all your bases but no I just think it's lazy and slightly snobbish way of describing a massive massive wide-ranging genre of books written by women about all sorts of things yeah me um, too yeah i mean one thing that me and phil talk about a lot is that one of the reasons we wanted to wanted to do this podcast in the first place was to try and get away from any of that snobbishness that does still, still seem to exist when people talk about books because 
you know people should be able to read what they like and what they enjoy and you know it's not a guilty pleasure it's you're just reading something yeah. that you enjoy um but i wonder what kind of conversations you have with some of your author peers oh well that depends because there are i have different um spheres in which i meet other writers so at festivals and what have you the energy can be quite um uh it can be quite challenging at festival because you're sometimes meeting your literary heroes and having to act natural um and but then some other writers treat you as a literary hero so you've got somebody coming up to you who's the same age as you and has written as many books as you but they're talking to you as if you're somehow kind of elevated from them um so the conversation then and it's all quite fleeting everybody's going back and forth and, and doing their own things and running around and but yeah so the energy is quite different when it's my group of writer pals which is quite a wide a wide circle um we just just sit down and just talk about our kids <laughs> really um occasionally talk about work but there's no sense of competition there's no sense of discussing people's careers or who's doing better than other people or talking about our publishers or anything like that yeah i actually found at harrogate lisa the the crime i don't know yours isn't specifically crime but in the wider umbrella of the genre of crime all the writers seem to really support each other and, and I, I remarked on this to mark billingham and mark billingham's theory is that the people the readers are so hungry that there's enough books to go around you don't need to be elbowing yes. another writer out of the way yeah exactly it's not like people just buy one book a year so if they bought jojo moises they're not going to buy mine so then i need to hate jojo moises because they bought they all bought her book and not mine someone going into a bookshop which will happen again one day they're then presented with an opportunity to buy more than one book someone going onto amazon is going to see adverts for all sorts of other books that amazon think they might like because they bought that book so the whole thing feeds into itself so it's just anybody buying anybody's book is a brilliant thing for other writers and not just in the crime genre but in any genre you know when i was part of the chiclet um, community such a supportive community of writers everybody looking out for everybody else and encouraging everybody else um and wanting the best for everybody else um, I, I don't, maybe there's some other genre of writing that I haven't written in yet where everybody's really backstabbing and <laughs> unsupported, but I haven't found that. I haven't found that group of writers yet. And just going back to what you just said to Natalie about the festivals, is there a, a, a hero that you remember meeting and how did that meet, how did that meeting go? A hero that I, no, because I avoid them. I'm so scared of meeting people who are, oh, I'm terrified of meeting famous people or famous writers. I just see them standing across the room and i just think well i'm not worthy um so um but i did get to hang out with harlan coben at harrogate purely because he was my editor was there um looking after me and she also had harlan over from america and was looking after him at the same time and wheeling us around and taking us to to marketing drinks and, and nice dinners and what have you um so i got quite used to just hanging out with harlan coben but um yeah generally speaking if i see someone famous uh, book event or a festival I keep my distance <laughs> and who are your group of early readers or people whose opinions you really value that you want to to share something with is it just sort of agents and, and editors or is it other people yeah so it goes first of all to my editor um who is I've, I've had a few editors over the years and this editor is the only one who I would say I share a brain with so it almost feels like I'm handing her over, handing the manuscript over to another part of me. So there's no 
nerves or trust issues or worries that she's going to come back and, and say something that's going to upset me or be wrong I know that I will hand it over to her and she will say exactly what I needed her to say and see exactly the thing that I knew that was wrong but I couldn't quite put my finger on it um, so she is she's more than an early reader she's part of the writing process for me totally and then after her it goes to um, my other editors and my agent um, and yeah so that's that's one part of the early reading process but now we've got um, NetGalley as well mm. so that's terrifying when you know that it's just been um, got the green light on NetGalley and you've got all people on Twitter saying oh I've just been I've just been accepted for a proof of Lisa Jewell's new one I'm so excited and I'm just sort of sitting in the corner of a dark room feeling nauseous like, don't read it don't read it please <laughs> put it to one side um so yeah and then there's the publication which because of preceded things like netgalley um sometimes the vine on amazon you already kind of know what the response is going to be but it's still really nerve-wracking um so yeah that's the sort of the, the process of uh, the dissemination so we should just explain ones. that um NetGalley is how Natalie and I read it. It's a kind of review site where you can register and then you can apply to get permission to read books up front. That's what that is. And you'll, we should give a shout out. That you then have to be quite um, active on social media to spread the word. It's like, a, it's like a payoff thing. Yeah. Like, we'll give you this advanced reading copy of this book, but you then have to read it and tell everybody that you've read it and what you thought of it. And um, yeah. And Not shout out to your editor, because that's how I met you for the first time in, in person. That's Selena Walker, isn't it? And she's just incredible, isn't she? She is. But yeah, this is who I was just talking about. Yeah. She is incredible. I, I can't believe how lucky I am that I ended up in her in her hands, which was just fluke, actually. It was total fluke, that because um, I wasn't writing crime at the time that she took me on. Um, I was still writing family dramas at that point. And... Um, she was the only editor available at the time to take on a new new writer um, after my editor left and it's a bit like sorry this isn't ideal she's our crime editor but she's really good she can do commercial women's fiction as well and then yeah could not have worked out better it's, I'm so lucky to have her. Writing is such a solitary thing and you seem incredibly happy and confident in what you're doing obviously you know 18 books to your credit but does your ego can it still take a battering if you happen to read that one review that says like I didn't yeah. like it or why did she do that or yeah. how does that kind of weave its way in? Um, I really hate it I'm not I mean I don't let it fester um, I kind of do just take it on the chin and think oof that really hurt that really hurt I feel horrible about myself now it's usually when someone says something that taps into your own insecurities the thing that you thought you were rubbish at and then somebody says you know she's a bit rubbish at that um and that those are the ones that hurt the most um and yeah but my ego let's not call it an ego that sounds I, I can take it. I can take it. I don't like it. It hurts, but I can just take it on the chin and move on. But yeah, they're not nice. <laughs> and the characters in this book that are more unpleasant than others, are they more fun for you to write? Do you, have you got a bigger smile on your face at the end of that day than you have if you're writing the, the more placid characters? 
Yes, yes. So my last book, The Family Upstairs, had a character in it called Libby, whose role within the book was to be the detective to find out what had happened in her childhood home uh, when she was a baby. Um, and so her role was very functional. And as I was saying earlier, she's one of those characters who I knew didn't, was never going to turn bad. That was not her role in the book. And I just found her really, really uninspiring to write about. It was just like, okay, she needs to go and discover something today. And, um, but the, and then switching on to a character who has um, issues, who's shadier, who's um, less trustworthy is just so much you know, so much more to get your teeth into when you write those characters. I loved writing Owen in Invisible Girl. I absolutely loved writing his chapters because he was just so complex and weird. And I, as I said, I hadn't decided how dark I was going to let him go. Really. He's also slightly unreliable narratorish as well, isn't he? Exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, we won't spoil it by saying why he's unreliable. Um, but yes, he is. For most of the time, you, you, you're kind of on his side and believing what he says, but every now and then he'll say something and you'll think, oh, yeah. okay, maybe you did. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's and Sapphire is the other person I felt that we learn or that we progress through the story with. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, because she was one of those characters. Again, so, again, this is what I was saying about how I'll just land something on the page without thinking what it's going to be for or where it's going to take the story and Sapphire was one of those she wasn't in it was just supposed to be Kate and Owen originally the book and then early on in the book I mentioned Kate having looked at her husband's patient records and found um, who's a psychologist her husband is a child psychologist and found the records of this girl called Sapphire Maddox and for some reason I just thought oh she might be a really interesting character to write about actually she could bring another dimension to this story and another viewpoint so that's where sapphire came from and i literally hadn't thought about her until i started writing her first chapter again you mentioned at the end of this book that is it already in development for tv or film or not this one no not this one i've got five five of my books currently under option if the film industry ever restarts, I might actually get something made this year or next year. Yeah. Can you say which ones, uh, is it already out there, which ones are under option? Yes, yeah, so from the olden days, 31 Dream Street is under option and from, oh, The Making of Us, which is one of my middle family drama books, is under option. And then from the later ones, The Family Upstairs, Then She Was Gone and Watching You are all under option. And what does that actually mean to be under option? Under option means that a production company have paid me as an amount of money, generally quite a small amount of money, as a placeholder, just to say, please don't let anybody else make this into a film for the next year. Um, so they have the right to, at the end of that year, if they haven't made it into a film or started production, then they have to ask if they can option it for another year. And this might change from project to project, but will you be the scriptwriter on those as well? No. I have no interest in screenwriting whatsoever, none whatsoever. I've got no interest in any of it. I just want the bit where I walk into the cinema um, and sit down and watch it unfold before my eyes. I'm very, um, yeah, hands off, un uncontrolled freaky about what happens to my books if somebody wants to make them into a TV or a TV show or a film. So, yeah, I won't be getting involved. 
that feels quite well, unusual. The, so you don't, you're not precious about no. how they may end up looking or who might get cast or. Well, I'm saying that because I think I essentially believe that they will do the, the best job that they possibly can. But my God, actually, if I think about it from another angle and found out that they were going to cast somebody absolutely ridiculous or change the setting to somewhere completely nonsensical or, or, or change the ending so that it's just, yeah, I might then have something to say about it but certainly I'm assuming from conversations I've had with these production companies that they have the best of intentions and want to stay as close as possible to the spirit of the of the material that they're paying to use so but yeah it hasn't happened to me yet so it's easy for me to say I'll be hands off but let's see what happens if it happens <laughs> well the good news is that if you're listening to this and you'd like to be in a Lisa Jewell book then that that is possible, isn't it? Because um, Angela Curry, who's the DI, the investigating officer in this, that was someone who wanted to get in character from Click Sergeant's campaign. I know a lot of writers do this now, and they yeah. basically use auction and fundraising to get yourself included in the book. But it seems like a great thing to do. And you're going to do it again next year. Yes, I think this is about my sixth um, character auction that I've done. Um, so pretty much every one of my last six books has got a character name in it that was named for someone who won an auction. Um, and they used to do, they used to run actual proper auctions. Now they just do them on eBay, which is brilliant because it means that anybody can, can join in. Um, and they run them the first week of March. So March 2021, I will be probably tweeting about it, no doubt at the time to remind people. But yes, yeah, so you can just go onto eBay and, and you know, make an offer and your name could end up in my next book. And is it on the proviso that you're always a good character like a copper and not a serial sexual assaulter? I have to be really careful, yes, exactly, exactly. And actually Angela Curry, the, the, the DI in this book, she is a bit, she's a bit of a tough nut, isn't she? She's quite, um, she's not the most sympathetic character I could have chosen. Um, no, she, I just she's... thought that maybe a reader would actually like to be the DI in charge of the yeah, exactly. production case and not be too fussed about whether they were a sweetie pie or not. Yeah, I think that'd be all right. I wouldn't want to read about Phil Williams who was donning his black gear and going out and doing bad things. You know, I mean, black balaclavas yeah. and black lycra. And... <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. You wouldn't want to be that one. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt, go on. So I'm just trying to think of where you are at the moment in your writing cycle. So you're presumably mid into the next book? Um, where are we, May? Um, so what happened was I don't, I ostensibly I write all year. In reality, I write a little bit at the beginning of the year um, and then do the majority of my writing um, from September to December. But at this point, halfway through May, I would normally have written probably 30 to 40,000 words of my book. At the moment, it's standing at 10 because what happened was lockdown started and I just went into a complete state of immobility. Just like, what? You want me to write a book that I started writing before lockdown about people who live in 2019 and go to the pub? Um, how the hell am I supposed to get back into that place and you know get into those characters' lives when their lives bear no relationship to you know, the lives that we're all currently living. Uh, so I just stopped for about six weeks and couldn't write a word. Um, and then um, I, I, I blame it on that. I can also blame it on the fact that my children are here all the flipping time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to writing in an empty house. I write either in a coffee shop 
uh, when I'm too distracted to write at home or I write at home in an empty house and now suddenly I can't write in coffee shops and my home is never empty and my elder daughter has verbal diarrhea and never stops talking to me. Um, <laughs> so I've actually, I've rented a studio flat opposite my house. Um, and so I cross the street every day and go and sit in a studio flat. Um, and, but it's brilliant. I'm not going to defend my actions in any way because what's happened is I started writing again. So yeah, so I'm sort of further, further behind than I should be at this stage in the year, but I'm feeling very, very um, in gear to, my motivation is back and momentum is building. So it should all be all right. There do seem to have been, I mean, obviously generalizing, but two reactions to people being in lockdown earlier this year, which is creative people, I suppose, which is either that it immobilizes them and yeah. just you're not able to have the headspace to do that. Yeah. And whereas I, I'm in that zone as well, by the way, I found it really hard um, uh, versus other people who seem to have like unleashed this inner crafting, yeah. writing, creative flow yes. that I'm really envious of. Yes, I don't. I, I, I think that's fear. I think that's a fear. I think they're both fear responses um, and they're both completely legitimate responses. So doing nothing is as legitimate as doing too much. So there you go. We're fine. But yeah, I, I did have to <laughs> take action because it was all very well and good for me to sit at home going, I can't write. I can't write. Fact of the matter is I kind of have to. I don't know how long this is going to go on for. I don't know how long my kids are going to be at home for. Um, what am I going to do? Just not write another word until, you know, my children go back to school. So I had to take action and I'm very fortunate that I was in a position to do that because I know a lot of people haven't got that option. Um, so yes, praise be, I was able to do that. And I'm quite excited about this book now. And it's actually quite nice going and writing about 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask as well, um, I know this is a book you've talked about uh, a lot in interviews I've seen of you previously, that the Nick Hornby's High Fidelity was an yeah. impetus for you and that you wanted to be a music writer for the enemy when you were younger and whether there's still a lot of that kind of bubbling inside so we could get something coming out in that genre oh no it's, it's a bit sad really I I could time my sort of disconnection from music with the birth of my first child I was obsessed with music as a teenager and then I wrote my first few books I would have like a soundtrack while I was writing the books so that every book had in my head an associated soundtrack and there's still songs I hear and I think oh that's what I was listening to when I wrote 30 nothing or or whatever um and then I had a baby and then it was all about shh keep everything quiet baby's sleeping don't want to disturb anyone um, and I've never listened to music again in the same way since and just generally don't listen to music anymore I don't know anything about music anymore um it's not part of the soundtrack of my life it's really sad actually so no that that sort of aspect of my writing inspiration is is gone are your kids into music? Uh, yes, so one of my kids, a 13 year old, has got, I think, really quite good taste in music, quite eclectic across the board. We went on holiday with her last year on her own, so which meant that she got to have um, full control of the music in the car. So we listened to her music the whole weekend and I actually quite liked her stuff. Um, my elder daughter likes um, grime and drum and bass. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite so <laughs> not quite so fond of that, but I you know I like that she likes it. So yeah. And what was the younger one putting on in the car? What were you hearing? 
Oh, uh, like Rex, was he called Rex County? Yeah, yeah, that's Orange County. And um, Frank Ocean and um, other people whose names I can't remember, but just (laughs) nice sort of pop stuff that I liked. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, I don't want to end this conversation on on a dark note, but I think with (laughs) you're about to (laughs) about to yeah, with Invisible Girls still kind of looming large in my head because I only finished it last night. I think like the the last page leaves you with quite quite an emotion and a particular as a female reader yeah. as it, it makes you question how men view women a lot more than I think I let happen in my day-to-day life I suppose yeah. I don't know what, what my question is in this I, I just I just think it's interesting that it kind of it just felt really dark towards the end there yeah so you're talking about the very last yeah revelation yeah. in mm. the last few lines mm. yeah it's horrible isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um yes i don't really know what to say to that apart from it was a very dark note at the end of the book and i think it's very important to put it there because the, before that there was this sense of like oh we're all safe now we're all back in our houses and, and the danger is gone and um and of course we know that that's not true you know there's always going to be a danger lurking somewhere um yeah and uh, I always do try and end my books on an, on a note like that that makes people reevaluate what they what they thought um yeah what the what they thought it was all about and uh, yeah. you just need to be careful Lisa because what you don't know is that this morning's Natalie's filed for divorce so ah what no I haven't <laughs> oh, you're such a joker. No, my is great. Um, Sorry, was that too dark? <laughs> that was quite dark. Come on. I was. Especially I didn't know if you were joking or not. <laughs> Can we get some book recommendations from you then? If someone phoned you yes. up and said, Lisa, I've, I've, I'm out of books and you can't recommend any of your own, then what have you got for us? Right. So. Yeah, another nice thing about lockdown is that I've been able to read a bit more. And what I've actually been doing is instead of what I normally do when I'm reading day to day, which is I read very, very slowly and I only read at bedtime, is I've thought, okay, I'm going to read all the books I've been taking on summer holidays this year. I normally save them, my my sun lounger reads. I normally save them up and take them on holiday. But I'm not going on holiday this year, so I'm just going to read all the wonderful page turny books that I wish uh, so I have read, um, and when does it come out? I'm not even sure. When does it come out? It's, oh, the 11th of June, so quite soon. Safe by S.K. Barnett, um, which is a, it's an American novel by an American novelist. In fact, both the books I'm going to recommend are. Um, and it's about, well, you start reading and you think it's about a young girl who was abducted when she was six years old from outside her house who then reappears at the age of 21 on her parents' doorstep. Um, but it's much, much more than that. It's so twisty. It's so every sort of 30 pages, you're like, oh, I thought I knew what this book was about, but it's not about that. It's about this. And then 30 pages later, you're like, ah. Um, so it's absolutely, I read this in a couple of days. It's so clever and so well done. And actually, it's written by, um, I think the, the author is a man in his 50s or 60s, writing from the perspective of a 21-year-old girl, incredibly convincingly. Um, and then My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell, which um, 
uh, somebody told me about this late last year and they were already, you know, that I could feel, it was like before the girl on the train came out and you could feel it in the air for weeks before there were even advanced reading copies available. You just knew this book was coming and, and uh, it finally arrived. I pre-ordered it on Amazon last year when somebody told me about it and it arrived just in time for lockdown. Um, and it's every bit as good as the hype would suggest. So it's about a young girl having an affair with her English teacher at boarding school. Um, and it's got quite an interesting twist on it in as much as she continued her affair with him into her adult years. And for most of her life, we meet her again when she's 32, has thought of this affair as the greatest romance of her life. Um, but then when she's 32 years old, lots of other girls from her boarding school start filing complaints against this teacher saying that he abused them when they were uh, his students so she has to reevaluate everything about her grand love affair with her English teacher so yeah two fantastic books oh this has been such a pleasure thank you so much Lisa it's been great oh I've, I've loved it it's been really good fun talking to you both oh yeah Lisa thank you so much it's uh, such a joy to have you on our podcast thank you for having me <laughs> So just to go right back to the start of that interview then, because um, obviously mm. we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, mm. this term pantser yeah. comes from seat of your yeah. pants, right? That type of writing. Do you, because you you obviously write as well. We don't talk as much about your writing, I don't think, as we do about my slightly botched attempts. To no, that's fair. I think it's probably because mine's... Um, would you say you were a plotter or a I think a it's because it's stalled a bit. Well, so if I'm honest with you, I'm somewhere in between. The book I'm writing um, came out of a short story that I had to submit for a, a writing course I was on. And so if you talk about the plot of my book, I know how it ends. Um, and I know one of the things that will happen in the kind of fourth act. But then other than that, I quite like the lead child approach of going, right, I'm going to write for the morning, sitting there, opening the laptop, mm -hmm. and then thinking in two hours time when I finish thinking, where did that lot come from? I find that really exciting, you know, yeah. that you've got no idea what you're going to yeah. type. And it's almost like it, this sounds so, um, I nearly used the word mom would disapprove of. I know which word you're going but, to use, um, W. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretentious. But it, it, pretentious is a very good alternative. Hi, mom. Um, it's like it flows through you and it's coming out your fingers and you can't control it. I find that amazingly exciting. Do you know what yeah. I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I do. When you get in the zone. But again, I think it's, um, yeah. I think it's true. You have to put in the work before hands before you can get to that point so you have to have had those kind yeah. of trying to wrestle with what's happening and some days it works and other days it doesn't but when it does suddenly flash it's yeah such a rush it's such a buzz it's really cool um I also like that you're like uh yeah I'm kind of uh I think I'm more in the lead child zone it's like yeah I'd like to be in the lead child zone as well of selling trillions <laughs> of copies of books <laughs> yeah. um, writing as you go yeah. Do you know, who, I tell you who gave me, I should have passed this on to you earlier, who gave me a brilliant piece of advice is the writer, the crime writer, A.A. Dand. And um, I phoned him last year because I was stuck on a plot point. So I'd, I'd got so far with my writing. I knew that I had to get certain, two, two characters had to get from the scene they were in to a different scene. And I couldn't think of a credible way to get them. There, mm -hmm. Right. And he said, and I thought this was Ace's right. He said, right, in that case, just write on your screen now, just write, the characters end up blah and where you want them to get to. He said, and then just plow on with the rest of your book. Yeah. I said, why? He said, because the minute you start plowing on, you'll work out how they got there. Yeah. He said, but if you sit there and try and dwell on it now, it won't come to you. No, it's true. 
it's true and I do think um again not that I've had the headspace to do that much lately but I think it's um I find it a lot easier to jump around and not write chronologically so you know if I if there's kind of a scene that's playing out in my head then I just better write that that day and that might come at any point in the book um whereas mm, if I kind mm. of sit there and go okay I've now reached you know this point in the chronological plot this is the next thing logically I should write I'll kind of do that staring at a screen and then like staring out the window and be yeah. like oh, I just don't no know good, is it? yeah it's no good no. no good no no and um for me then those um ideas when I'm stuck often come if I'm on a run or on the exercise bike at the gym or basically doing something completely removed from writing. Yeah, but don't you find, I still find it really hard to validate that time, again, without sounding too much like that W word you were talking about earlier. Because um, I've had a, I've got a friend who I haven't seen for a really long time, but she's a screenwriter. And yeah. ever since I've known her, she'd kind of, she's so confident in a really good way of saying, oh, no, 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 today was like a, I was just walking, today was a, a thinking day. Um, and absolutely having that in her diary as a part of the process that was you know equally or even sometimes even more important right as of kind of what you needed to I, do I have a question mm. does she have does she have kids yeah she does oh really yeah. she can still afford to do yeah. thinking days yeah yeah um she must have help she must have help she's got a husband and the kids go to school so. oh okay. yeah so that's probably the help um but yeah i was i always remember being quite struck by that as it was just even a it was kind of not even nonchalant but so sort of like well yeah that's what you do and I'd be like oh my word yeah. like I I find it really yeah. hard to allow myself to say oh no no I'm just I'm just sitting with it actually well, that's because there are too many demands on your time yeah probably I mean you've got you've got both kids at home at the mm -hmm. moment you've got your husband you've got me going bestsellers bestsellers you've got several work clients screaming at you yeah. for your time mm -hmm. there's very if you treat your time as a pie chart there's a, there must be the thinnest sliver yeah. which is yours yeah there is and then you probably would feel tremendously guilty at saying, right, well, I'm going to use that seven minutes that's left for me to go and have a think. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's always a job to be done. There is. There is. Although I did spend an hour last night collecting pears in Animal Crossing. Is that thinking time? I don't think it is. <laughs> well, you should explain what Animal Crossing is because all I've got in my head is Brucey going, nothing for a pear, my lad, not in this game. Uh, Animal Crossing is uh, a Nintendo game. Um, so I was playing that on the Switch, trying to, not that our house is that competitive, honestly, but trying to kind of keep up with the kids. Um, and yeah. it's a family activity, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fun. So yes, those things Do you want to know what my family activity was before I came to speak to you on Best Sellers today? What? We, my son, I think I might have told you this now, has gravitated from Mr. Men books to Roald Dahl books. Mm. And uh, he read The Witches, and he's, we're now progressed onto Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Great book. And... Um, we found the film. I think ITV showed it, and I recorded it. Which one? So the original. We were all sat around. Yeah, the Gene Wilder. So we were sat around that, and um, when I left the film to come and speak to you, they just made it into the Chocolate Factory. Ah, oh, so you just missed Augustus Gloop being sucked up. Oh, that's a massive spoiler alert. <laughs> I have missed that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we've got to that bit of the book either. So um, I'll keep that to myself. Thanks for that. What? what? Fact, oh, mate, you've that... never seen the film before. No. You never read the book. Never. No. What? Okay, yeah, Augustus Gloop gets sucked up one of the chocolate pipes. Wait till you see what happens to Veruca Salt. Is that really what happens to Augustus Gloop? That's not like a euphemism, is no, it? No, it's not. Yeah, that's really what happens. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Um, wow. 
Yeah. Oh, well, oh, how lovely. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that you haven't yeah. actually been exposed to that yet. Have you read the tweets? I haven't done much dial, to be honest with you. No, oh, no. And I offered him the tweets um, and he didn't fancy it. So I, I want him, I want it to be baby led <laughs> weaning, as Mimi said to us. Um, so uh, basically he chooses, the, you know, we go and stand there and he looks at all the covers and um, they've got two for seven on roll dial in our local supermarket. So I say to him, right, you can pick two. So, um, so far he's done the... Um, the one about the big crocodile, yeah. you probably know. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I did do when I was mm-hmm, nine. Mm-hmm. I definitely, definitely. So that was a joy to read it back with him. I definitely did that. And then the witches I hadn't done. Okay. I couldn't get over how dark the witches Yeah, was. it is really dark. The twits is really dark as well. Like the, the ending of the twits is like, whoa, okay. Um, oh, okay, right. Yeah, but it's good. <laughs> uh, my favourite doll is the BFG. Not that you asked, but there you go. Ah, we've got that. It's really we good. Have, uh, that's, on, that's next in the pile. And also that is on Amazon Prime at the moment, mm. the version that um, uh, Rylance yeah, did. Yeah, Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance yeah, did. Spielberg. Yeah. It's great. I really like that film. It's really well done. It's really sweet. Yeah, but good. There you go. So actually you don't need anything in time because you're having a nice time. You're being nourished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just not getting any further forward with your edits. <laughs> no, it's all fine. It's all good. I am though. I am. Does your agent listen to this podcast? And does your agent never ring you after an episode where we've discussed your edits and gone, can you get on with it? No, no, she's lovely. She wouldn't do that, I don't think. Um, no. There's no like, there's no pressure, which is probably a bad thing, because I think I probably respond best to, you have to do of course this you do. by tomorrow. So I set myself I can tell you that. Yeah, but you're a journalist, yeah. so of course you... I mean, when you're in journalism, your deadlines are like every minute, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And so you hit them, and then you go and collapse into the pub. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Back in the days Do you want me to set old. you some deadlines? Uh, no, it's all yeah. right. I can set my own deadlines. I'm good. You sure? Yeah. yeah. Can you stick to them? Yeah, I will do. But yeah, that, that is actually, I'm going to put that on my to-do list for this week. I will set edit deadlines and stick to them. If you want to get in touch with us, you'll find us bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Maybe you can come up with a deadline timetable. No, for don't. <laughs> or do an impression of Phil. All right, governor. Uh, yeah, really bad one. <laughs> Do a company impression of a boy from Birmingham. <laughs> uh, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. And stay tuned for the Smoking the Bandit outtakes from this episode. Do you, if like, I'm rec- do you want to come say hi? No? Okay, you're just going to sort of babble in the background. I think it's a question about what, com- what computer game are you trying to play now? Minecraft. <laughs> Uh, we've done like a family thing on Animal Crossing recently. I'm totally bossing it. Yeah. Oh, apparently oh, I'm not bossing yeah. it. <laughs> no. Anyway, Lisa Jewell. Yeah. Um, Heckling thing, it runs in the family, doesn't it? Do you think? <laughs> yes, I can't see where it comes from. No. It's really, can Elliot yeah. do an impression of me as well? <laughs> yeah, you probably can, actually. He does a really good impression of me. Um, which is quite mean, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's doing it in the background now. Okay. If only this was a visual podcast. Anyway, this is very dull for anybody listening. Uh, Lisa Jewell is an incredible thriller writer. And... Um... Okay. No, he's about to pillow fight me. Oh, my God. Like, seriously, the kids Elliot. have gone feral. Um, Earlier. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Lisa Jewell, it. Ow! <laughs> okay, go now.
eyes on you. Elliot, the rules are, if you stay, you've got to do the link. There yeah, no, it's gone. always works. <laughs> Done. Out. Yeah. There you go. Shyness prevails. Um, Start doing whatever, whatever I do best. We'll show off. When do we get started? Whenever you like. Is now too soon? No. <laughs> it's all shit. Let's pin the first one. <laughs> <laughs>